Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Ba- ba- baby, baby, you so fine. You gave me your number in the checkout line. Ba- ba- baby, baby, you so fine. You gave me. <laughs> I, need to- <laughs> I need to make it longer, dude. <laughs> Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, and it's your host Adam Reed. It's your co-host Luke Skyrider. <laughs> That's right. Luke is back, everybody. Woo, Luke! Oh <laughs> After my one-week hiatus. <laughs> well, you know, since we only do the show bi-weekly, it's like more like a month. But you guys, you guys make me feel special. Thank you. <laughs> You're when welcome. When I, when I'm not here, I, I sit there on the mic thinking I need. to... I need to fill in for Luke. I need to talk more. I need to think of something to say. I oh, gotta God. do something. Yeah. Well, you know, no offense, there, no one can quite fill in for Luke. I mean, Aww. it's just, it's just a one. Luke is just a, just a, an individual all to his own. I love you guys. <laughs> Thanks, man. We're all broing out here. <laughs> Woo! But you, you did, you did miss a good interview with Doctor Future, and I don't know if you actually sat down and listened to it, but it, it went rather, uh, it went rather long. But it was a it was a really good interview on uh, Jewish ritual magic. Sweet. Did you get that chance to actually listen to it? No. <laughs> did <I> get... <laughs> Luke didn't listen to our own show. I, I could I could be honest and tell you that I did. But... Oh yeah, I did. I actually did listen to it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it immensely. And then I could BS even further because I've already read a lot about it. Oh. <laughs> uh... Yeah, the part where he was talking about Kabbalah was really interesting, and the other part was kind of cool. I'll and... get to it. I'll get to it. <laughs> okay? Love you, Luke. I lost data on my phone again. Oh, uh, yeah. You get that whole, like, one gigabyte a month? I, I keep I keep watching twerking videos, and it just takes up, <laughs> it, it just takes up all my data, just, like, instantly. 
You know, <laughs> you, you kind of get hypnotized by the, uh, <laughs> the movements of the female gluteus maximus. Yeah, I wait for Kira to go to sleep, and I just turn it on low volume. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Kira, you need to listen to the show. <laughs> Find out what your boyfriend is doing. No, she doesn't need to get any more jealous. <laughs> that would be bad. She'd be like, "What are you doing, Luke?" <laughs> She already she already has the delusion that like every girl wants to hook up with me constantly. I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, just just, <laughs> just look at you, man. I know, right? I mean, what what woman wouldn't want to a fine strapping young man I'm, wearing I'm his just, wilderness mountain t-shirt? I'm bursting <laughs> at the seams and and sexiness. Oh, oh yeah, man, just totally busted out. <laughs> I was actually listening to some of our old shows today. And a couple, uh, just kind of like skimming through, the one with Micah Hanks I was listening to, the one with uh, David Weatherly that we did, the first one we did with Dr. Future. And since this is like kind of like our three-year anniversary now, since it was around this time about three years ago that we started uh, Conspiranormal, uh, <clears throat> I was listening to it and I was like thinking, man, we sound so much better now. We got so much of a rapport going on. And with Rob in here, it makes, it sound, makes it sound really good. Oh, yeah. Um, Thanks, guys. Back in the that was back here in the days of back here in the days of Chris. Yeah, good old Chris. I know what I'm doing. Whatever <laughs> happened to Chris? Gee, I don't know. Gee, hmm. <laughs> Adam and I don't <laughs> know anything about that. Mysteries. No, we don't. We don't know anything about it. But uh, tonight we have on Peter Goodgame, and uh, we're actually going to be calling. We got an interesting time zone difference. Okay. I think we're about like uh, five hours i think behind uh he is in hawaii so it's going to be like the afternoon for him whereas for us it's early evening so that's going to be kind of cool so covering the pacific ocean and i have a major announcement to announce uh but that's going to be at the end of the show oh so something that uh want to tell everybody about them really you super, having a baby excited about yes i personally am having a baby it's the wonders of science wow yeah. I always knew you were a hermaphrodite. <laughs> well, we like to keep that secret. You know? <laughs> it's one of those things in, in the... I've been doing those secret uh, Kabbalistic and uh, hermetical oh, chemical so, studies. So you found... myself hermaphroditic. So you found the chapter about like how to incubate a baby like from the soil of the earth? Yeah, that's from the, uh, the homunculus stuff. No, no, no. Like the That's a separate chapter. There's like... It was like a golem. Incubate a baby yeah. from the soul of the, <laughs> of the there, earth. There, there's, there's, a, there's a chapter about like how to create golems. And then like the chapter right before that that I was reading was talking about like they extracted the egg somehow like from the female and planted it into the soil. And then they made like a some kind of combination of um, like a concoction that made it like a primordial soup and like made a baby like spawn from the incubation of the earth. What is this and from? It's it's from the Kabbalah or like really? the, yeah. It um, weird. Was it or, like a like a dirt monster or something? <laughs> no, no. Like it, it's supposed to come out like a, a regular baby. I'm not really sure why like why anybody would want to use the earth as an incubator versus no, the I would suppose, traditional birth. But I would suppose that it would have something to do with whether thinking of like you know the power of creation yeah like in the bible how adam is created from the dust of the earth yeah right they're, so they're, they're to copying that, that. Yeah, yeah trying to emulate it but i digress tonight we're going to talk about um islamic terrorism and we're going to talk about a book that uh peter goodgame has called the uh, globalists and the islamists 
and we're going to talk about how some of the global, uh, some of the globalists, like the guys, like the Bilderberg Group, uh, Club of Rome, all these these kind of guys, some of like population control guys, like the ones Sweet. that you really like, Luke. How they're using uh, terrorism as a form of uh, almost like population control. It's not so, working too well. No, apparently not. I still have to wait 10 minutes at like intersections. Yeah, so <laughs> as long as Luke has to wait 10 minutes on intersections and globalists, you're not doing your job. Exactly. You guys <laughs> suck at your job. <laughs> you have one job and that's all you had to do. <laughs> and so we're going to be talking about that and kind of, uh, but <clears throat> it's going to be, an, it should be an interesting discussion. I'm real excited to have Peter on. Uh, also, probably want to talk a little bit about the some of his studies into the um, maybe some studies into prophecy and into uh, Nimrod, the uh, builder of the Tower of Babel. Yeah, that sounds like a Tower in- of Babel. Tower of Babel. <laughs> that, it sounds like an insult you'd call someone like you Nimrod. You Nimrod. Well, it is an insult. Is it? Yeah. Is it like one of those archaic like old yeah. man insults? You Nimrod. You darn Nimrod. <laughs> Well, without further ado, we're going to go to the interview, and uh, we'll be back with a major announcement on Conspiranormal. All right, welcome back to Conspiranormal, and uh, we are back. I'm going to try not to say uh too much in the course of the interview. Yeah. We are back with Mr. Luke, Lukey Dookie, and <laughs> as he's come to be, he's, because he's come to be known with uh, many of our listeners of Mr. Lukey Dookie for some weird reason, and uh, Soundman, producer Rob over here on the board. I didn't even know this. And, yep. We've been okay. getting those emails. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so Mr. Lukey Dookie. Right. <laughs> but uh, we have on the line Mr. Peter Goodgame, and we are going to talk about a book that he wrote called Islam, The Globalists and the Islamists. And this is a book that was written actually in 2002 and was just released, I believe, uh, last year, Peter? January. Or was it early? Okay, yeah, so it was earlier this year, 2015. Yes, yes. So we're talking about like, it's like 13 years uh, since the book was actually written to when it was to when it was published. Um, yes, but I've always the, wanted the to still around. Right, exactly. I've always wanted to have you on, and I thought with having Dr. Future on talking about Jewish ritual magic, and we did delve into a little bit of the politics behind that magic last time on the kind of like the Jewish uh, Israeli side of what's going on. I thought it would be a good compliment to have you on to talk about kind of like the what also is going on in the Middle East with the Muslims and Islamic terrorism. And we're going to get a view of Islamic terrorism tonight that we, we don't normally get on like Fox news or Sean Hannity or any of the myriad, uh, you know, kind of conservative radio talk show hosts out there. But I want to first have you come on and talk a little bit about yourself, uh, kind of like your work in the prophecy field and then how you, got involved in how you got interested in studying the subject we're going to talk about. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I got connections I got connections in Nashville. I'd like to visit one day. Uh, yeah, cool. We'd love to have you. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, as far as this subject, man, I, I just uh, I remember that morning um, in Hawaii. It was early. Um, it just turned on the news. And I watched the uh, I watched the twin towers crumble. Actually, I actually watched one of them, and then I went to work. And I actually um, I I I was unable to absorb what I had watched, and right. I refused to believe that the tower had actually crumbled. 
because it didn't seem possible. So I, I'm at work and I'm like, no, the tower didn't crumble. You know, something just happened. But, uh, but I had seen it with my eyes, you know, and, but I, I blocked it out and I didn't think it was possible. And, and finally I got home from work and watched it, the news some more. And, you know, that's all that was on for, for many months, years. That's all they would do is, is show that all that footage over and over again. But, uh, you know, at, at first when it happened, I was, I was angry, you know, I was mad. I, I, all different kinds of emotions went through my head, but uh, but then I began to understand. I began to to notice how the how the media was using it, and I, I recognized that there was uh, that that this event was falling in line with an agenda that had been going on for quite some time. So that's when I just started to dig, and I I was familiar with uh, some you know fringe uh, internet researchers and stuff, and and a whole bunch of stuff popped up and. So uh, I think this uh, this study of mine, I, I published it on the internet uh, in 2002. I can't even, I think middle of 2002. And uh, it was just the the culmination of, you know, I must have ordered like 20 books on, on the Middle East and radical Islam and, and did a bunch of research into, uh, you know, current events and, and current stuff. And, and it was just a product of me putting my, my thoughts together and doing my research. And so, yeah, I, uh, I was, I was real skeptical of, uh, the official media line, you know, uh, after, after digging just a little bit. Yeah. I believe that, that I was too at first, although it took me, it took me quite a few years to really kind of come to, um, realization about what really happened. But I mean, I want to get later on kind of your thoughts on what happened on nine eleven. but I want to start out with, you know, a little bit of the history and Luke's favorite subject. He loves history. Woo, it's, 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 it's the best. It's yeah. the best for him. And uh, <laughs> the history of, because you start off in the book with the British in the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, basically, you know, some pre-World War One, but mostly post-World War One. So what's the kind of like the root of the British influence in the Middle East and how did Britain begin to kind of cultivate Islamic fundamentalism against uh, more secular uh, governments there? The yeah, East? yeah. So uh, you know, the the British really got their hands on the Middle East in the aftermath of World War One. You know, and they moved in there and and they you know reclaimed for themselves as colonies the parts of the old Ottoman Empire that had been pushed back, and uh, so they cultivated these relationships with the the local elites and they they took over Egypt and and it's just uh, their their old colonial way you know they install their own leaders and and they bring in uh, the merchants and the financiers and uh, subjugate the people um, but uh, after after World War II things changed because there was a big anti-colonial backlash you know ironically led by America and all the high rhetoric that came from FDR and the Western powers to defeat the Nazis, and and then in the post-war world, uh, the the third world was expecting us to live up to our, you know, all our talk about freedom and independence, and and of course, you know, with the founding of the UN and this place where we wanted to give every nation, uh, you know, self, uh, independence and and a voice in world affairs, and so you have a couple of layers. On the top layer, you have all this rhetoric. And then uh, underneath that, you have America as the new dominant power, and we're kind of uh, 
the American leaders are really, um, really close with the British, and the British power had faded. But right. what we learned from them is how to how to acquire power and how to uh, how to influence things and manipulate uh, different groups against each other. So um, you know the the whole era from World War II to the late seventies. These independent nations in the Middle East, they're doing all they can to establish democracy and to bring um, independence and and just control over their own affairs. And at the same time, um, the U.S. bloc, is they don't want that. They want their merchants to have the first right to take profits from these nations. So there's a real covert war going here underneath the whole cover of the Cold War. Um, So the... So what I show is just that uh, fundamentalist Islam was actually something that was seen by um, the Anglo-American interests as something that they should support and they should cultivate because they didn't like the true democratic nations that that grew up after after World War II, um, like in Iran. You know, Iran had a democracy, um, yes. but the CIA came in and. And uh, so dissent and the propaganda machine came in and and they claimed that this democracy was actually communist and and so we we basically overthrew the tr- the first true democracy you know in in Iran um, and then in Egypt you had something a little more complicated I think you had more of a British influence um, and uh, uh, Nasser really uh, you know he emerged as as a secular leader of the Arab peoples from Egypt, and again, he wanted to um, just uh, get independence for Egypt, but also for all the Arab peoples, and so he he did a number of things that irritated the West, uh, you know, he reached out to, to Russia, um, I think it was Russia that helped them um, build the Aswan Dam, I believe that's that's the name of it, um, yeah, I, I remember my, um, my grandpa... Is a scholar and kind of a uh, 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 amateur archaeologist, and and he visited Egypt. Um, I must have been in the '60s, but uh, he told me stories of uh, of catching a train in Egypt that was uh, uh, had a bunch of Russian soldiers on it too. You know, so um, the West didn't like the fact that Egypt was uh, um, independent-minded and willing to make their own um, alliances. You know, so. Uh, there was this, I'm sure there was he this had group. reasons. I'm sure he had reasons to um, align himself with the with the Soviet yeah, Union because yeah. there was. I mean, there had to have been a suspicion that the British and the Americans did not. I mean, definitely a suspicion with the British. They had dominated Britain. I mean, they had dominated Egypt for so long. But yeah. and and with the Americans too. I mean, they weren't really doing the Egyptians or or him any favors. No, not at all. Not at all. And so so then I look at. Uh, so in this book, there's uh, there's like two parts, and the first part has like six chapters, and I just go through all the history of all these different areas: uh, Egypt, Iran, um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and all the all the geopolitics going on. But then in the second part, I look at the Muslim Brotherhood specifically. So the Muslim Brotherhood yes. is like the parent organization, really, of all um, Sunni. Uh, Islamic uh, terror groups today. Um, and the Muslim Brotherhood was started in Egypt. And it was started by this guy by the name of Hassan al-Banna. And uh, 
He actually, um, you know, he grew up in Egypt that was dominated by Britain, and um, he really uh, was very fundamentalist, and um, he did not appreciate Western influence, and he didn't appreciate democracy and Western values, you know, the secular Western values that Nasser embraced, you know, that the West had a lot of rhetoric about, but wasn't really, really willing to extend the reality to, to Egypt. Nasser right. took it and said, well, we really do want to be democratic or well, not democratic, but um, we want to be Western oriented, you know, in, in the structure of our society and in industrializing our country and becoming modern. And that's that's really kind of what all fundamentalists, you know, of whatever um, religion, they don't want to be modern. They want to go back yeah. to the archaic fundamentalist uh, ways. And so that's kind of how Hassan al-Banna um, operated. Um, there's a there's a weird connection in there also with him and Freemasonry because his society yes. was a secret society and it was kind of modeled after Freemasonry and there's a bunch of Masonic connections right there at the very um, beginning and it's really uh, it's kind of it's hard to figure out how much of that is um, you know so I can't really say that uh, you know the Muslim Brotherhood is a branch of global Freemasonry because I don't think that's the truth but it's just uh, there's some interesting connections there um, that probably if the light of truth was shown on all of it, we would probably be uh, kind of uh, amazed about how deep those connections go. But um, so anyway, Albana, he had this, uh, he had an anti-Nasser belief. He didn't like what Nasser was doing. He didn't like modernization. Uh, there's just a number of things. He supported his own political group, you know, and uh, in Egypt. And I think he was, he was, uh, he was assassinated. Nasser assassinated him. And then the, the Nasserites, they, they cracked down. The government, the army, cracked down on the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, just like it has just recently happened, you know, in Egypt. They have yeah, a couple made, of years made ago, the Muslim yeah. Brotherhood. Yeah, they made it illegal once again. Um, so the Muslim Brotherhood was outlawed. And a bunch of people were put in jail. A bunch of leaders. But um, the Muslim Brotherhood really... Uh, found a, a friend in Saudi Arabia, and that's where the Muslim Brotherhood really um, grew, and uh, Muslim Brotherhood also had uh, a friend in, in Britain, so you, you find a lot of these um, fundamentalist uh, Muslim uh, militants um, having a base in London, also in Geneva, Switzerland, and, and Saudi Arabia. So this is the area from which um, the CIA got involved, in supporting um, revolution simply for revolution's sake, because we didn't like we didn't like the regime in Egypt, we didn't like the regime in Iran, we didn't like the regime in Syria. There are a number of, of uh, Arab countries that were trying to form a pan-Arab alliance. You know, uh, yeah. a group of countries for Arabs and to promote their interests in the world. And uh, the Western powers just they couldn't they couldn't handle that, so they supported revolution for revolution's sake, just to stir up trouble. And uh, go ahead. I think um, it's worth going over, especially with Iran and uh, Mossadegh and the democracy that was in Iran that we, our CIA, helped overthrow. I believe in 1953, and yeah. I think it's worth going over that somewhat uh, about. You know, especially with Iran, because that's 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 also a big boogeyman now. Uh, yes, you know, Net yes. Netanyahu just got up with like a few weeks ago and uh, addressed our Congress and said that Iran was this big danger and that we needed to 
uh, go that we couldn't restrain them. The Israelis were going to, to war with them to prevent them from having nuclear weapons, even though the Israelis have nuclear weapons themselves. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's I think it's worth going over kind of like the history there about Mosaddegh and also the Shah and how he was felt to have gotten out of control too, and then they got rid of him. Yeah, he got too independent minded too. Yeah, but uh, Mosaddegh was uh, Mosaddegh really he was uh, he was like a lifelong public servant. You know, he was he was educated in France and Switzerland. He he got a law degree. Uh, but he he went back to Iran and he served as a professor, as a finance minister, as a minister of justice, um, and he just worked his way up through the government. And he really, you know, he embraced the the Western values, you know, of self determination and freedom, and all this high minded stuff. And he wanted to see it implemented in in Iran. And so um, after after World War II, there was a you know all kinds of changes in governments all over the world, you know. And everyone was jumping into this idea that, as you know, that had been pushed, especially by the USA. You know that every country deserves. You know, World War II was. We don't we don't recognize this, but it was also um, it was very anti-imperialist in in the rhetoric. You know, and FDR was promising that every nation had every right to to pursue its own self-interest. You know, and it should not be dominated by more powerful, um, you know, nations. And so Iran is just one place where this, this, um, these ideas just took over the nation and, and there was a, an election and Mossadegh was, um, he came to power and, uh, he had every, every right to be in power. It was the move of the people. Um, but the problem with him started when he actually began to put, uh, the rhetoric into action. And one of the things that he re- did that really irritated, uh, England particularly was nationalizing the oil. He said, "This right. is our oil," you know. And that's the big no-no. Go ahead. That's yeah, the big that's, no-no. That's a, yeah. that's a huge no-no. You know, all of this wealth just sitting under the ground, waiting to be extracted. The the Western oil companies, British oil companies, had come in. They had they had put all their money into the infrastructure to begin to you know suck the wealth out. Um, but, um, Mossadegh didn't just take it, you know, he didn't just steal it. He, he had a concern for British interests. You know, he promised to pay 25% of the oil profits to the British as compensation. Um, so there are a number of things that he recognized, look, you know, I can't be totally, um, blind to the reality that the British is their investment here, you know, but the reality is this is on our land. This is Iranian oil and our people deserve to profit from the profits of this oil. This is a natural resource. That's that's ours, and and so, uh, but as soon as he did that, uh, the MI6 British intelligence began to work with the CIA, and um, actually, um, Mossadegh had can't come into power because the previous Shah had been deposed because he was recognized as a dictator and a puppet of the West, and the people chased him out in 1941. Um, and then Mossadegh was elected, and then he was then he was taken out in this in this CIA backed MI6 backed coup, and then the Shah was brought back in, and he the Shah understood exactly you know his role. He he was uh, he was recognized as uh, the ruler of Iran, but uh, it was understood that he had to capitulate to whatever the Western powers wanted to do. And they just wanted, they wanted to keep control over the oil and over the natural resources. And they wanted a open free market for American companies and British companies and that, that same whole deal. 
But well, um, let me add, let me so, add yeah. too that during during that coup, the fifty three coup, that uh, I mean, we they, they stirred up like a lot of Islamist sentiment to get rid of Mossadegh by saying he was a communist and all this kind of Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely, yeah, so. yeah. I, I actually, uh, I don't know if I get into it in the book, but I think that's where Ayatollah. Khomeini uh, began to get funding from the West, you know? Yeah, um, yeah you do talk about that in the book. He was, he, yeah, he was, he was a voice right there early on, you know, and, and, uh, and he, was, he was against uh, uh, what Mossadegh was doing, at least his, his um, you know, turn towards the mo- Western modernism. And so the CIA uh, gave him some money and they, you know, gave him a platform to, for his voice to be heard, to stir up all the other fundamentalists there. Um, so anyway, um, it was the Shah who benefited from that first coup. And so he rules Iran for a couple of decades. And uh, But then he he gets a little um, too independent-minded. And I think it was in the 70s when I, Iran first began to look at things like nuclear energy, you know, um, and, and doing other things that uh, – uh, and, and the way that uh, – they were forming alliances and looking towards, you know, being a part of an Arab bloc kind of thing. And so, uh, so who did they have uh, to take out and to replace the Shah? Well, you know, it was, it was I think, in 76, the end of the 70s, um, that it really started to – all the propaganda against the Shah started to pick up. And, and what's really interesting is that um, – the big anti-Shah voice was amplified by the BBC of all of all things, you know, yeah. British Broadcasting Corporation. They were like the voice of the Ayatollah, and 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 Western journalists would would be doing things like uh, smuggling in um, or dis- and distributing um, the Ayatollah's tapes because for a while I, the Ayatollah was actually um, exiled. I think he had a base in France for a number of years. But he still tried to stir up the people against the Shah, and like his his speeches were were um, recorded on on audio tape and then smuggled back into Iran, and so there's just a whole bunch of uh, of shady stuff going on, and it's just a, a power game, a manipulation game, and so yeah, the Shah was taken out. He really didn't. He was in over his head. He didn't realize how far he had drifted from favor and it was just, uh, it all, it all came in a storm and then the, the Ayatollah took over and then, uh, that was the end of, um, you know, it, it was the, it was a coup that the West got what they wanted, which is the end of the Shah. But, uh, but then they, uh, they were set, they were face to face with, uh, a very anti-Western regime. You know, the Ayatollah, they were, they would shout slogans of death to America as well as right. death to Russia and death to, you know, the entire West. So they were really, they emerged as um, completely um, outside of any connections. And, and then uh, right after that, that's the Iran-Iraq war was started up because that's how, um, you know, just we kept the, uh, we kept the fighting going. Saddam was Saddam on our side. Hussein was on our side. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we got him. Donald to, Roosevelt shaking hands with him. Yeah, yeah. So just a real seedy, uh, whole corrupt uh, story of of our really. I keep saying our, but I <laughs> American yeah. and British, you know, Western involvement in the Middle East, and very just very hypocritical and 
and just disgusting, you know, to read the the truth of what's actually going on, and then and then to turn on the news and watch Fox News and and just this surface level of propaganda of understanding of what's going on there. It's just you know the 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 sheep out there just they don't know what to think. We just <laughs> follow along right. with the the mainstream story that we're told, but there's so much more to it. Also, too, one thing about the Shah was that he was pursuing nuclear power. I think that was one of the big no-nos. Yeah, yeah, and it still and it and it still seems to be that way. Uh, I want to talk about the globalists and their influence on the Islamists, and you know what the influence of the globalists is, what the the plans are for the Middle East, and why would they want to specifically bring the Middle East down? You know. Uh, you know, kind of like they're this is this is right up Luke's alley because like he's all about population control. So he, I want to I, I, yeah. I bring <laughs> I want to I want to bring this you, in a little like bit. To bring that fact to life, huh? <laughs> so we can piss off our listeners even more. Oh boy, sounds like, you're, like getting, you're getting fan mail on that subject. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's fun. It's all in good fun. It's good, clean family fun. Right, exactly. <laughs> But like you know the, the 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 population control agenda, uh, the the Middle East gets too rich, and then there's this idea that eventually you got to bring it down somewhat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I in the book I talk about um, you know what happened um, by the 1970s. You know you had all these elitists and uh, globalist institutions. Uh, you know, like the United Nations, of course, but also things like the Club of Rome, the Tavistock Institute, the Aspen Institute, all these different organizations that are kind of like, you know, the elite's little pet charity organizations. You know, this is where they come together with for dinner parties and pat each other on the back and give each other awards and stuff. But uh, yeah. underneath it all, you know, you have these elite people really worried about how the um, human race is, you know, because they consider the earth their own. You know, they, they own the earth. They have all the wealth. They have all the power. And they want to be able to ma- manipulate things in their favor without, you know, really um, being transparent to the masses about what their intention is. Um, and they don't want to have to sit at traffic lights. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that's, probably the, that's probably the foundational issue there, you know. <laughs> 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 Absolutely, I feel their pain. I feel their pain. So, so how can they do that? You know, they so they began to, to promote this literature talking about you know the the terrible overpopulation pro problem and um, you know the ecological destruction that's going on. And so they uh, they're promoting books by um, um, a Stanford biologist who in 1968 wrote a book called The Population Bomb. His name is Paul Ehrlich. And um, so he talks about how the human race is like a cancer that's infecting the earth. And, uh, and then he talks about in his book how he has to, we collectively, meaning the elites, have to shift our efforts from the treatment of the symptoms to the cutting out of the cancer. And he says how this operation, you know, to deal with the population bomb, the operation will demand many apparently brutal and heartless decisions. And in the book, he even talks about things like putting birth control chemicals into the world food supply, you know. I mean, these people are really concerned about things that are happening, and, and they have some really sinister ways to deal with the problem. But um, so, yeah, one of their ways was to deal with, um, you know, this, this huge flow of wealth because of the oil that's flooding into the Middle East and 
definitely wanting to keep the Arabs um, fighting against themselves, you know, not uniting as, you know, they're one of the world's biggest, uh, you know, sources of wealth. And if they actually got on the same page and wanted to actually do something on the world stage, they could, you know, they had the means to actually achieve what they would, you know, whatever they would want to put their minds together to do. And so they had to keep them um, fighting. Um, so they had this idea of creating an arc of crisis throughout the Middle East and, you know, spreading from, from Egypt, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia was kind of actually uh, part of, really within the Western um, <laughs> sphere, you know, because so I can, I can really imagine, um, you know, Saudi Arabian kings and, and ministers sitting in on these and actually plotting against uh, the destruction of their own people, you know, the, against the Arabs, because that's how, hmm. um, that's how disgusting, you know, these, these Saudi leaders are, you know. Um, but yeah, they, they had an idea of creating an arc of crisis um, from, you know, from Northern Africa through the Middle East and all the way to Pakistan. And, and, and really it's, uh, it blew up, you know, by the end of the 70s with, with the Iran thing, with the, the PLO, with the Pakistan-India conflict. So, um, yeah, so this is what I document in my book. Like I said, all this, all this research I, um, I, I put down in 2002. I published it on the Internet, and it was just recently when someone came to me and offered to publish it as a book for me. So on all the specifics, I'm kind of uh, a little uh, hazy on but, um, you know, there's just a few important things. Let's talk about um, um, 1974, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. There was a, a National Security Study mem Memorandum, and it was published, and it was, it was just handed out. You know, it wasn't um, publicized to the media, but, again, this is another thing where he talks about how world population growth is a danger of the highest magnitude calling for urgent measures. So um, this was just some of the things pushing, um, just continuing to destabilize not just the Middle East, but the entire third world, you know? Right. And so throughout all of this, I, I explain how, you know, this is their agenda, and one of their most powerful tools to put it into motion was the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood was, a, you know, a militant Islamic fundamentalist organization that had branches in all these different um, Arab, independent Arab states, and they were funded, and it's like the fuse was lit, and they started causing trouble. Um, uh, you know, actually, just take Israel for an, exam for an example. The PLO was actually a secular uh, modernist kind of organization at the beginning. You know, the the PLO and Yasser Arafat actually had much more in common with people like Nasser, you know, just wanting independence, wanting to be secular, not having a big uh, religious side to it. That's how they started up. But then, but then Hamas, Hamas was funded. Hamas was just a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. They were the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. And so it was to destabilize the PLO that Hamas was funded. And this created disunity within the whole Palestinian movement. And who benefited from that? Well, of course, it was it was the Zionists. You know, it was the Israeli right. state. They benefited the most by having this fractured Palestinian enemy. Did Israel help them? Uh, did, did they help fund Hamas? Did they help there, them? There's get a off lot the of uh, there's a lot of research out there that says that yeah, Israel itself actually actually helped to fund Hamas. You know, uh, 
uh, this that's very controversial. You know, you can't you can't yeah. say that, and uh, most people will roll their eyes. But there's there's evidence out there. You know, I've seen it. But the, there's but more beyond that though, it's it's really evident that I show you know in my study that uh, it's the CIA and it's the it's the British that are really funding the Muslim Brotherhood, and that's the source of of um hamas's you know that's their that's their mother organization they're part of the muslim they are the palestinian branch of the muslim brotherhood so you have this very fundamentalist religiously oriented um militant you know radical terrorist organization and it's it's being fired up in palestine in syria in in uh lebanon even even you know and in pakistan in afghanistan uh, and of course in Egypt, and then even this, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood even caused waves in Saudi Arabia, which is kind of ironic, you know, because it's the leaders of the Saudis that are actually helping to, um, um, you know, support this organization. And yet the, you know, they're, they're actually, I think, I think the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood was probably much more, um, um, probably non-religious even. You know the 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 leadership, some of them at least. A lot of the a lot of the ones that are in connections with the the Western um, intelligence organizations. But your your average foot soldiers of the Muslim Brotherhood, they're 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 true believers, man. You know they're they're Muslims right. to the core. You know right. so so there was a, a you know a huge um, uh, you know anti Saudi uh, uh, sentiment you know within the Muslim Brotherhood because it was really obvious just how crooked and how corrupt the Saudi leadership was. So, you know, the whole arc of crisis thing was, it was just destabilizing to every, every nation in the region, whether they were, go ahead. Oh, 1979 seems to be the pivotal year. That's the year that you get the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. That whole thing gets started, uh, with the, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Also the, um, the Iranian Revolution. Yeah, there's also the mosque. Uh, I believe that the the terrorists that took over the mosque in Mecca um, for yeah. about like a month or something. I think that and one of the, like the younger, the older brother of Bin Laden was involved with that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and Bin Laden, he was a Saudi, you know, and he was yeah he was uh, cultivated from within the Muslim Brotherhood movement, you know he, and so he was um, he was kind of. Um, um, Converted to the Muslim Brotherhood worldview um, through some of the um, writing of a guy who was in Egypt, a Muslim Brotherhood leader in Egypt, who was in prison for a number of years. And um, uh, this guy's influence, I found, was was really huge. And he was is this not, a Qutb? Yeah, yeah. I can't yeah. even pronounce that name, but um, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, um, but he he was just a huge voice for for uh, the Muslim Brotherhood movement and. And his ideas just spread throughout the um, Islamic world, you know, like a virus. And and the thing is, the West, um, the powers of the West, really promoted it for quite some time until the whole thing kind of grew bigger than what they intended. And uh, and now we have to face it, you know, in the form of the Islamic State today, you know, and and yeah. other things going on. So, but for these for these guys, it's all just part of the game, you know. They're <laughs> they really. They're they're in control of the situation, and and as long as you got a bunch of um, poor brown people fighting and killing each other, that doesn't bother them at all. And that seems like what it mostly is. I, and a lot of it's played up here that you know ISIS 
you know, they they kill the the hostages that they take and these beheading videos and whatever. Um, and that there's, you know, you have the old Charlie Hebdo thing in France that, that went on back yeah. in uh, February. But it seems that that's mostly what it is. It's just them killing people on a local level where they are. And like ISIS, for instance, they hate just, they're more hateful of other Muslims that don't agree with them than they are of like, say Christians. Yeah. 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 It's really just interesting how convoluted the whole situation is there. You know, I mean, you got ISIS, they've right. declared their own independence. They're, they're in control of this region in the upper Tigris and Euphrates that straddles, um, you know, Syria and Iraq. And they've taken over, you know, part of a region that's, uh, you know, historically owned by the Kurds. So they're straddling over this area and they're bordered by Turkey on the north, um, which is a lot of people think Turkey's really kind of just letting them do their thing. And and Turkey and the Islamic State are getting along just fine together. Um, but then to the to the east, you know, you have Iran and and the Shiite and the and these radical Sunnis, they're they're deadly enemies, you know. And that's why you have um, Iranian Iranian generals right now helping out the Iraqi army as the Iraqi army is trying to move north and retake some of their territory. Um, but the the U.S. you know we the U.S. doesn't like Iran, so we're not gonna you know we're not gonna use our air power to help them advance with the Iraqi army to the north. Um, yeah. You know it's just and then um, then of course you got the Syrian regime who we're trying to take out. Um, and so we have our own favored, uh, groups in Syria that are fighting, um, the Syrian regime, you know, but, um, but they're also fighting the Islamic state. It's just so convoluted. It's crazy. It's just insane what's going on there. And, but it's all a product of, of just, uh, the West being very happy just to see that whole region, just to descend into a spiral of violence and, and stay that way, you know, for decades. It doesn't bother these globalists one bit that these people are just continually blowing each other up. Uh, right, exactly. And it, and it just keeps going and going. And I also wanted to ask, too, you know, we got these historical examples, you know, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, uh, you know, that was supported, funded by the CIA. And that later really became Al-Qaeda, which the, the word Al-Qaeda is almost, it's almost like a front for the Muslim Brotherhood in a way. It, it doesn't really yeah. mean anything. It just means the base. It, it doesn't but, mean anything, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's one guy that you quote in the book that says that he just had to laugh when he saw that, you know, Bin Laden's organization was called Al-Qaeda because it was really just a list of these um well, what they called, you know, the Reagan administration freedom fighters, uh, we're going yeah. through these, we're going through this like um, safe house, and it's those guys that were registered into this safe house, and they were considered like the base or you know, the base. Arabic yeah. Al Qaeda. <laughs> but you know, looking at ISIS specifically, you know, you hear a lot of stuff. You know, and I see a lot of stuff on Facebook about like Israel started out started ISIS or the CIA started ISIS. You know, is, what's the, in your opinion, what's the truth? Is there any truth to any of those claims that, you know, the CIA might be behind ISIS in a way? Especially where they get all their new, their, their new, the brand new Toyotas. Yeah, I, I noticed the vehicles they're driving around. They're, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not hurting for cash, you know. They're, no, they're not. They, they're well-funded. Um, yeah, I, I think um, 
I think ISIS. Well, I, I think the Saudis and and the Israelis are kind of tight, um, but I think their direct connections probably come more to the Saudis with ISIS. You know, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I haven't I haven't dug into the roots of ISIS and their leader and traced his history and tried to figure out you know all of this craziness. I, I haven't spent the time <laughs> to do that. But um, you, you just got to look at, at who benefits, you know, who benefits from this, this, this thing going on. And, um, you know, there's like, a, there's like a, a little game going on between um, your mainstream media and the Islamic militants. Because just going back to this whole idea of the base, you know, it was, it's a completely illegitimate title for whatever this organization was. You know, they never called themselves Al-Qaeda. You know, they, they were just a, yeah. a group of, of Mujahideen who had connections with the West and who originally were trying to topple Russia out and get them out of Afghanistan. But um, um, but the, the Al-Qaeda was a media creation. You know, we just the Western media grabbed up on this this name that was taken from like, a, you know, some uh, a government uh, report or whatever, a US federal government, U.S. government report and. And that's what we gave the title to. But then what happens is the, the Islamists, they kind of embrace that. And they, they, they kind of like, right. the right. Al-Qaeda, you're calling us the base? Okay, yeah, yeah, that's what we are. We're Al-Qaeda. Yeah, you know, so it's, it's completely ridiculous the way, uh, you know, they kind, of, they kind of feed off each other. You know, Fox News um, profits by, by spreading, um, you know, fear and <laughs> deception and, and getting and you know just uh, getting people offended—that's how they make their money. And but at the same time, that's exactly what feeds um, you know militant uh, Muslim groups. You know, so they they kind of feed each o- off each other and have this little dance going. And it's just uh, it's sickening the way it uh, is played out on on the news and and in news reports. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have anything you want to add, Luke? <clears throat> um. No, not really. Looks <laughs> <laughs> a bad of words. Yo, no, like, all right, yo, it, it, <laughs> I go so long, I just forget what my original thought was. But, but yeah, like he was talking to the the part where you were talking about, um, you know, polluting the food supply to affect uh, the the fecundity of, uh, you know, the fe- the female yeah population here in the U.S. like. Uh, here I was like looking for some kind of like evil, like hidden secret ingredient or whatever, but it's simple. It's everywhere. It's just trans fat. Trans, trans fat. like tr- yeah. yeah, trans trans fats are what's causing uh women to be less fertile. Yeah, I, that, that wouldn't surprise me. That wouldn't surprise me. And it's and all the and all the, the you know, hormones that are fed into our dairy industry and and into our meats and it's just uh it's just a really a toxic cocktail, you know. Just oh, the, yeah. just the mainstream food supply these days is a real toxic cocktail, you know. <laughs> that, that's a whole other subject. No, I know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to stray too much. <laughs> yeah. but I mean, you know, it, it it is part of it in a way because it's all it seems to be all part of an agenda and a plan. Yeah, yeah. But, it's 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 just weird how it all ties right. together and it kind of emerged around the same time and right, exactly. Uh, yeah, I want to ask about 9-11 specifically. And, you know, you made the statement before that some of the guys in the higher up, taking an example of the Muslim Brotherhood, that the guys on the higher up 
they may not be the true believers. They may have more of these connections with the CIA or MI6 or any of these kind of intelligence agencies. Whereas the guys in the rank and file, they be, they are the true believers. And how I've always felt, I've come to the conclusion about 9-11 was that, you know, there was a lot more going on with the hijackers themselves. Yeah. Some of them may have been true believers and actually pulled it off. But maybe the guys like Muhammad Atta, maybe they weren't exactly the yeah. same. Yeah. Maybe they had connections to intelligence. And it, 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 in that respect, you don't really need the you know, the, the controlled demolition, although Building 7 is, is very strange. You yeah. don't need the controlled demolition thing. You just need to look at the, t- at, at the terrorists themselves and also all the um, – well, stuff like you, you know, the FBI in Minneapolis. You try to call these guys, try to with concerns about you've got terrorists uh, or you've got Arab guys that are learning how to fly planes but not land them. So they yeah. call this into their superiors, and then someone tells them you need to drop this because we got this. Somebody else is taking care of it. No explanation given. You just need to drop yeah. it. That's actually in the nine eleven commission report. That's something our government actually put out that's real suspicious yeah. to me so yeah. what are your thoughts about 9-11 and also about you know was bin laden involved you know was al-qaeda really just a front for like these muslim brotherhood groups yeah i well again look at the hijackers themselves you know there's there's yeah. evidence that some of them were out at strip bars drinking and snorting cocaine you know it right doesn't yeah, like, yeah um but was that them just indulging in some of the Western temptations, you know, knowing that they're going to die as martyrs and that they're going to, you know, is it like, do they get a freebie, you know, before they martyr themselves or, so I don't know their mindset. I don't think you can use that to prove that they were not true believers, you know, in a Muslim sense. But, um, so I, I really, I really don't know. Um, but as far as the, the plot and the plan, I really think the key lies with this guy that, that showed up and he's really, you know, he's been taken into custody. He's been found. He's been arrested. He's in jail right now, I believe. But his name is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Yeah. And he seems to be the, the, the true mastermind. But and I think when you wrote the book, they had not arrested they, him. Right. They had not arrested him. Because that was 2003. Yet. They arrested him. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but uh, he was finally tracked down. But um, I, don't, I don't believe that um, – uh, well, I, I'd have to, I'd have to find out if the, if his trial was on the public record or not. Uh, I think there were a lot of the, I th- well, actually what I remember is a lot of the trial was behind closed doors. It was kept classified. So I think if this guy, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was given a voice, you know, given a microphone and allowed to explain his side of what happened, I think it would blow everybody's mind because I think yeah. if you look and in, dig into his past, you see um, how closely he was tracked by Western intelligence services. And then you begin to wonder, was he tracked by Western intelligence or was he, you know, in league with Western intelligence? You know, the line between the two there can get real shady, you know, there's, yeah. so it's, so I think he, um, he's really the key. And, and as far as um, Osama bin Laden being the mastermind of this whole thing, um, I'm sure he might have known of what was going on, but he, I don't believe he was the mastermind. I think um, I think this is another thing of that of the whole media thing, though. When when the media started saying he was the mastermind, he's like, really? 
uh, okay, yeah, I was the mastermind, you know, <laughs> sure, I'll take all, you know, you can uh, thank me for that one, you know, because it just it built up his prestige, you know, it, so it, it's just uh, <laughs> really interesting how how it all connects and, and how you can't, you can't trust um, anybody's side, you can't trust what Western media is saying, you can't trust what the what the Islamic organizations are saying. And, uh, yeah, the truth is just far stranger than we can even imagine, I believe. And the, the video that came out, like, that reportedly said that, been, that it was Bin Laden admitting with a group of friends that he pulled it off and he did 9-11, and that video, like, looks nothing like Bin Laden. It, uh, I mean, yeah. like, they've done the comp- side-by-side comparisons yeah. of what Bin Laden yeah, looks I, like. To this guy that's kind of like fat, and like the beard was all wrong, and it just, yeah. it just, it, you know, who knows where they even pulled it from? <laughs> well, even even the way that his assassination went down and how his body was dumped in the Persian Gulf, I, that's just, uh, yeah, that was just real, you know, it wasn't a clean operation, you know, the way that it was taken care of. It, it's there's, it's like it was deliberately done so that there will be the minimum amount of questions asked. Well, do you think that Bin Laden actually died in 2002 and that yeah. whoever they killed, they just said it was Bin Laden just to try to get some kind of that, political I think gain? That's, that's, or... that's real likely because we needed a figurehead of evil to stir up this war on terror for all those years. You know, We needed yeah. to keep a figurehead of evil alive, and he was the only um, likely guy. You know, <laughs> So we had to... Whether he died or not, we had to keep that image. We had to keep those images in everybody's face, you know, on Fox News. It, that that was really important. Well, I believe that there's a utility in maybe saying, unless that if they killed Bin Laden, or there was a utility in saying that they killed Bin Laden and they just killed somebody else. Yeah. And that we were going to start the whole Syria thing up and that we were going to need to ally with the Islamist yeah, contingent yeah. in Syria, so, yeah, so which we, later takes us now to ISIS. Yeah. Because those yeah, were our so guys you, over there in Syria. So you bring one chapter to a close. Yep. Everybody's happy because we got the bad guy. And then you start a new chapter with a lot of the same type of characters. Yeah, it's that's kind of seems like how it happened. Luke, tell them about the when you were at the bar when Bin Laden died. Oh, the bunch of rednecks like raising their glasses and cheering. Hey, man, he's finally dead! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one for America, zero for Bin Laden. <laughs> Bin Laden, more like Bin Hiding. <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty much how it went down. Yeah. <laughs> Luke is Luke is in true form. Yep. Well, you know, I want to I want to talk about too a little bit um, this idea because I believe in like 2007, 2008, somewhere around there, there was this panel, a research group that went over to Iraq, did all this study. I think uh, what was his name, James Baker, the former Secretary of State, was involved or somebody like that, and they came up with this idea that we needed to split Iraq back into three parts. The yeah. Kurdish area in the north, the Sunnis in the middle, the Shia in the south. Okay. 
that seems to be what we're getting now with ISIS because the Kurds are basically on their own fighting it because the the Iraqi army isn't taking care of business very well, and then you have yeah. the Sunni the, the Sunni in the middle and the Shia in the south. So is that actually through ISIS? Is that actually just being implemented? Um, it, that's kind of what it seems like, um, but I don't think they want three separate um, independent, you know. Um, countries that actually can, you know, do things in their own best interests. So right. I think they want to divide it um, with chaos. You know, <laughs> keep it divided with chaos. Uh, one of the one of the interesting um, things that's happening, though, there seems to be uh, coming together with um, the Kurds and Turkey. So so you know, earlier I talked about how it seems like Turkey is kind of turning a blind eye to whatever the Islamic State is doing, and so a lot of the Kurds are angry at Turkey. Um, uh, so, and even, um, you know, Iraq's angry with Turkey. Like, remember the, that, that city in the far North and the border was closed on Turkey and they weren't allowing Kurdish fighters to come in and defend the city. Well, they finally yeah. did. So there's just some weird geopolitics going on. But, um, but right now there's this heavy duty guy, Kurdish guy that's in jail in Turkey, but he has actually been making, um, speeches um, supporting um, the Kurds in Turkey to um, to stop fighting against Turkey, okay? And I think it's because they're sniffing their own self-determination and they're looking ahead to this future saying, look, we might actually be able to carve out our own little state here in the north of Iraq and have some self-determination because the Kurds haven't um, had their own nation for hundreds of years. You know, they were under the Ottomans, right. then they were under the Turks, then they were under the um, the British, you know, um, and then they were part of Iraq. The, the, you know, their their traditional Kurdistan was split up into, you know, three different nations. And, you know, this is how Western powers, the, this is how the British did things. You know, whenever they would put down a border, they would make sure it would straddle a traditional homeland so that there would always be uh, a war that could be stirred up at, at a moment's notice if necessary. And that seems to be, you know, what has happened with, with Kurdistan. But um, so... If if um, I, I do think that eventually the Islamic State chapter has to close, you know, so it's just a question of how is that going to happen, and the other question is what's the next chapter that's going to open, you know? <laughs> so we yeah. need to we need to look ahead of these guys because they're plotting and planning. So if if um, Kurdistan is allowed to become a nation, um, and uh, well, even we got to look forward to. The, in Syria, they really want that Syrian regime toppled, you know. So, so what? It's still hard to figure out exactly what is the long-term goal of of the globalists, and um, and and then we also got to worry about an Islamic Antichrist, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so, that kind of brings me to my next question. Okay, actually. so so yeah, let's uh, let's cut to the chase here, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, this is almost straight out of Fox News, too, right? I, yeah. You know, there's there's an Islamic Antichrist waiting in the wings, and um, and the only man who's going to stop him is Bibi Netanyahu. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> so Chuck Norris is behind him. So everybody else needs to be behind him too. Uh, absolutely. How could you not? Yeah, how could you not? So <laughs> no, it's it's funny, but you know we're laughing at things that, that I'm sure there's a bunch of your listeners are gonna gonna just have this glazed look in their eyes, like you know, like wait, this is the truth. Why are they laughing? You know, because yeah, so many people are. Laughing, everybody. Yeah, yeah. 
No, people are totally convinced, at least in in evangelicals in America, you know, dispensationalists, that uh, that there will be an Islamic Antichrist, and that Israel is like the last thing standing, keeping that from happening, and and we need to and and really they're worried that he's going to emerge out of something like the Islamic State, you know, and take over and behead people, like it says in Revelations, you know, and like we already see happening. So. Um, yeah, you know, I have my own ideas about the Antichrist and about the end game, you know, because I, I am a I am a believer, you know, I I, I love Jesus. I, I believe that uh um there's a whole human drama that we're in the final stages of, but um I just believe we gotta read our Bibles um a little more intently and we need to dig beneath um what we think we see on the surface, especially when it comes to end times. And lately I've kind of uh transitioned in my views on end times and i really well, let's talk about that uh, go let's ahead about, i want to talk yeah. I, I really want to talk about that you, you, you know like you are you, you from uh as as i've known about you through uh, dr future and a few other people that you are primarily a prophecy person you primarily have studied prophecy <laughs> and, and 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 i really want to talk about kind of like your your views on on the end times, because I don't think that as we're, yeah. as we're talking here, that it is all just like the basic, you know, like we, as we keep saying Fox news stuff, that's kind of a cliche in itself, but yeah, <laughs> it I is what it is, much. you know, but, but it, it's just like, you, you hear all this kind of stuff. And lately this whole thing about the blood moons has just been driving me up the wall. Yeah. 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 I, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of, I came to Jesus through reading Hal Lindsey, man. I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, Dr. Future brought that up last week. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's, uh, it's, that's kind of what pulled me in is my desire to understand the future and to, and to be able to read in the Bible, you know, that there's certain things happening that kind of make sense in this total, um, epic, you know, global context, you know, of, of this whole human drama. And, uh, so, that was in the late 90s, you know, and then I started reading and I got a hold of some dispensationalist stuff that I just thought, man, this stuff really clicks and it totally makes sense. And and you just and, and the Bible means what it literally says. How can it mean otherwise? You know, it's this surface layer that can speak to anybody at any time. And, you know, you, you don't need to dig deep. It's the Bible wants to communicate and this is what it's saying. And so I really I really believed in this uh, dispensationalist view of, you know, of uh of a separation between the church and Israel, two different programs for two different people with two different callings. And I believed in the seven-year tribulation and a pre-trib rapture. And and as I discussed all the different competing dispensationalist ideas of end times, I came up with my own. And I, I, I was thinking, like, you know, I these guys are on to something, but I've really got it figured out, you know. So I wrote my book and came out in early 2005, Red Moon Rising, and... I had my own chart and my own timeline, and I'm like, okay, all the arguments can stop because I have it figured out, and here we go, and this is it. <laughs> right, right. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I, I really felt that I was onto something for a number of years, and um, and so I wrote my Red Moon Rising book, and a couple of years later, I completed my. Antichrist research, which was still from a dispensationalist um, perspective, but it was much broader and deeper than just that. Um, and then, um, 
then I had an experience with the Holy Ghost, and that uh, turned my life upside down, and <laughs> and I kind of put all the whole prophecy stuff down, and I became excited about um, praying for people and seeing miracles, and and I had people in my life that were, you know, immediate close friends that were absolutely, their lives were absolutely turned upside down um, in a good way, you know, like it, like the book of Acts says, the apostles turned the world upside down, where, I, well, I saw people's lives turned upside down by the power of the Holy Ghost, and and for me, once I saw that, it's like nothing. Nothing else matters, man. This is this is awesome. So, you know, I uh, I went through a, a phase of just uh, you know bringing my whole family and friends and changing churches and starting up a healing ministry and all this kind of thing. And um, but uh, eventually, I recognized that you know some of my my Bible study there's still a value there, even though my views are shifting and changing over time. Um, so, uh, recently, you know, just over the last few years, um, I've, I've kind of, uh, broadened my focus and I've gotten back into teaching a little bit more and studying and writing. And, uh, you know, I was able to publish, uh, my Antichrist book, um, through Tom Horn and, um, you know, but, uh, it, but since that time, see, I just being in the more like the Pentecostal side, I, I get more in touch with people who are outside the box. And, uh, there's, uh, you know, a couple of people that helped, um, um, bring me out of like basic dispensationalism. Um, um, John and Linda Keogh are good friends of ours. Um, they kind of mentored us within, uh, the healing ministry. In other words, they kind of created a place for us to, um, to, to pursue miracles and to see things happen. And then uh, our pastors, Ed and Tracy Bean of New Beginning Christian Fellowship, they're just uh, pastors of a small charismatic church, but uh, they're really outside the box. And uh, then, But there's another guy that's uh, a really good friend of ours. He's uh, in his 70s. His name is Boyd Dennis. We call him Papa Boyd. But he had a, a radical experience with Jesus like 30 years ago when he, he, was, uh, he was a total uh, drunk and uh, uh, just... Uh, uh, totally in a pit in life, and Jesus appeared to him in a vision and, and called him to uh, to be a prophet. And uh, he's he's ended up in in Africa. He works out of um, he has a number of churches um, in uh, Nairobi area, and he he lives in um, Kibera slum in the middle of Nairobi, Kenya. Um, yeah, <laughs> but he comes back to Hawaii a couple times a year, and uh, I, I always uh, make time to hang out with him. But uh, he really messed up my eschatology. This this guy right here, Papa Boyd. He really, <laughs> he just uh, he would start preaching some things and give his his own just opinions on how things are going to work out, and just just really um, messed with me, you know. So uh, initially, I I began to go back to my end time stuff with uh, an intention of maybe confronting him and and trying to figure out, you know, and trying to straighten him out, kind of thing, you know. <laughs> But um, what it led me to do, though, it, but it was it was kind of from it was really kind of from a place of humility, though, because I was like, I need to figure out why this guy would say things that that just didn't make any sense to me about end times. You know, I needed to figure out what was he reading, what was he seeing that would make him think that way. So, you know, that just that just led me to to question a lot of the dispensationalist uh, uh, foundations of, of their teaching. And, and it led me. Um, just to study the New Testament again and to understand how the New Testament authors are quoting the Old Testament. 
In other words, dispensationalism is built on a literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecy. Yeah. But the thing yeah. is, the, the, the apostles who wrote the New Testament books, they don't treat Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures that way. They don't interpret them literally. They put a spin on it. And I think that spin is something that Jesus implanted to them because Jesus said, uh, or the book of Acts talks about how after Jesus was resurrected, he spent time with the apostles and he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. And to me, that means that a literal interpretation, a little literal understanding of what the Old Testament is saying, it's not going to get you too far. It's not going to get you closer to the truth. So I have just, I've really been led on a deeper spiritual understanding of of the relationship between Israel and the church and the uh, especially the, the Old Testament kingdom prophecies because the Old Testament is all about Israel, right, from beginning to end. And it's all about these future um, prophecies of what Israel is going to look like in the Messianic age. And so my, my views changed um, just as I was led by how the, old, how the New Testament writers understood their Old Testament. So, so yeah, I, I really I have a hard time with, with pre-trib. I even have a hard time with pre-millennial. You know, I think there's uh, my favorite book right now is is on end times is written by an amillennialist. You know, and problem is if you just read Revelation 20, you're going to think that's crazy. And a lot of Christians think they can build a foundation of eschatology on Revelation 20, but this guy points out that we need to build our eschatology on what Jesus teaches about the kingdom, because he's the king. And he's got the keys to understanding. And if we can build our framework of end times on just the simple things that he said that he taught in parables, um, then then we come up with a whole different idea. So, yeah. So, you know, I get I get accused of being a replacement theologian now. You know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but I don't I've think seen those I don't Facebook threads. <laughs> yeah, but I I don't uh, I don't think anything was replaced. You know, Israel wasn't replaced by the church. That's actually what dispensationalists say. Israel was yeah. temporarily replaced with the church. That's what dispensationalists say. And then they say, we're going to be changed out again. The church will get taken out and God's going to turn back to Israel. Well, that's not how the early church viewed themselves. They viewed themselves as the way. They viewed themselves as the fulfillment of what the, book, of what the prophet Isaiah saw for Israel. And, and Jeremiah says that the new covenant would be made with the house of Israel. And, and Jesus said that the apostles in the kingdom, that they will be ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Yet Paul says that, uh, that the apostles are the foundation of the church. So, um, yeah, it's, it just leads you to, you have to embrace a spiritual understanding of the relationship between Israel and the church. And so then this brings us back to, you know, what is the, um, what is the right of, of Jews to the land? You know, and what is the nature of, of, of what is true Zionism? You know, are, is there a group of people that are holding on to these promises from God? They get to hold on to a little piece of real estate in the Middle East. And it's theirs by divine right. And they have every right to go into that land and eradicate the population the same way that, the, the, that happened in the original Exodus. You know, this is, this is how evangelicals think. And I just think that's yeah. completely... Um, completely missing the gospel, actually. It's missing the gospel because when, we, when we're in Jesus, we're a part of true spiritual Israel. And we are, looking, we are looking to a Jerusalem, but it's the new Jerusalem. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where we're headed to. That's where Jesus is going. And in, in this understanding, 
you know, if you look in Revelation, there's there are two great powers in you know in in the spiritual battle, and it's the New Jerusalem is described as the city of the redeemed, and Babylon the Great is the city of the wicked, and those are two cities, and they're and they're not literal. Okay, they're this is this is spiritual teaching here, and what I've come to recognize is that Babylon the Great is simply a metaphor for the entire corrupt world that is passing away it's everything it's the whole world and so some interesting noises coming from back there yeah Yeah, it's like a spaceship landing (laughs) Uh, (laughs) is that some kind of bird or something that's a bird outside my window yeah (laughs) so strange species of hawaiian bird (laughs) yeah it it is i can't get a look i don't i can't see what he looks like but uh but um but anyway yeah so i uh yeah, I have some uh, I have some interesting ideas. My my views on end times have changed. So I uh, I've actually been blessed by uh, some of the stuff that Chris White has put out. Although I still yeah. think he's operating out of a dispensationalist framework, but he brings up some really interesting points about how the stage is really seems to be kind of set for for the Antichrist to be a Jewish hero, to be more like a Bibi Netanyahu than yeah, he a talked uh, about some you know of that than on that our show. yeah. I'm sure you have, yeah. So, I mean, there's. I, I just see that God loves to use irony, you know. <laughs> and and when Jesus came the first time, it was the Bible experts who were completely befuddled, you know. And and yet we think that we can grab a hold of a little literal understanding of the scriptures, and and know exactly what's what's supposed to happen, and think that we're helping God, you know, like we're helping God. By helping the Jews build a build a temple, yeah. you know that's how we're helping God to bring about redemption, you know, um, or you know, or or Are helping, we helping the def- Antichrist though, because if we help him build the temple. That's where the Antichrist is going to be, right? <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't. I don't that's I don't what understand. I'm saying. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's really convoluted, and I think there's just uh, so yeah. much bad teaching out there, and. And um, I, I really think end times is is really put forward in scripture as like one one big huge parable, but I think the template for that parable is the Exodus account. You know, in, in in the original Exodus, God took His chosen people out of Egypt and took them to the Promised Land, and Jesus is simply He's He's our new Moses. You know, He's our new lawgiver. He's He's our our new prophet. He's He's everything that Moses. You know, Moses is like the type, but Jesus is the fulfillment. But Jesus, he's he's leading us, he's leading us not out of Egypt, and it's not just one nation. He's he's leading all nations. He's leading all of God's chosen people out of all the nations of the world, and he's leading them out of Babylon and through the wilderness of this dark, corrupt world, and he's leading us to the promised land. But the promised land is not some real estate on this old, corrupt earth. The promised land is the New Jerusalem, and yeah. it's. That's that's where the tree of life is, and really the the new Exodus motif, which is you know that's kind of been my framework for this new understanding of end times. The new Exodus motif is solving the original problem, because where was the original exile in in the Bible? Who were the first people to be exiled? You got to go back uh, to Genesis three. Yeah, Adam and Eve. Yeah. Adam and Eve. Adam yeah. and Eve. They they were lived in a garden. And they got kicked out, and they got sent into the wilderness, as it were. And Jesus is coming to uh, 
you know, they had access to the tree of life. And Jesus is coming to take all of his chosen people to the new promised land where the tree of life is. The tree of life is there in the new Jerusalem. And so there, the, the context is so much greater, you know, and for, for Christians just to be focused on the Middle East and focused on the blood red moons and thinking yeah. that, you know, thinking that it's all about Israel and it's all about the Jews, it, we're, we're, we're just weaving in some Old Testament stuff that we're not understanding through the right framework anymore because everything changed with the new covenant. And it, just read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He talks about how the original Exodus was a template for what God is doing today. And we're supposed to learn from that. But all the Old Testament stories and prophecies, they're written in a typological way. So we interpret the prophecies that are meant for Israel in terms of the church, because we are God's chosen people now. And everyone who's in Christ is of the tribe of Judah. We are the true Jews. <laughs> you know, this is heresy to so many people out there. But this is, this is the truth, and, and this is what Jesus himself says in, in the letters to the church, to the churches in Revelation. You know, he talks, about, he talks about those who claim to be Jews, but they're not. You know, he talks about the synagogue of Satan. This is, this is very controversial stuff, but Jesus said it, okay? <laughs> don't, don't tell that to WorldNet Daily or the people that made the movie Let the Lion Roar. Don't tell that to any of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, what's that <laughs> second movie you mentioned? Let the lion roar. That's right. Let the lion roar. Yeah. No, I yeah. I ordered that movie. I just I had to understand what kind of uh, propaganda was yeah. uh, being being put out there, and that's just uh, typical. And it just it takes our eyes completely off of our calling as Christians, and it convolutes our understanding of the gospel of who we are and where we're and where we're headed. And and yeah, hopefully. Uh, Hopefully I have the time to write some more. I, I went off Facebook. I'm back working full time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm, very, uh, I'm very fired up, you know, about all these uh, different subjects and about, you know, what, what, uh, what Jesus wants to accomplish with his church in the end times. I think there's some amazing things that are going to happen. Um, but it's just the thing is there's just so many options out there today. There's just so many options. And we gotta we got to put – Jesus first and submit to him and be humble and, and dig deep and, and we'll get on the right path. Peter, I got to ask you, do you still um, talk about the Nimrod stuff very much? Uh, Your your studies into that? uh, Not too much, not too much, but I still think, um, I still think there's a lot of uh, good stuff in there. Um, Yeah. uh, Tom Horn and I, we've chosen not to, um, renew that contract or continue to publish that book. So it's going to be a collector's item soon. Um, okay. <laughs> and there's a, there's a few, um, there's a few chapters in there that I, I would probably not agree with anymore. Cause that was still, I was, I was kind of right. coming out of dispensationalism then, um, kind of, um, drifting. Well, I wasn't, I was kind of coming out of dispensationalism, but I wasn't coming out of premillennialism and I'm still, you know, I lean towards the millennial view, I would say right now. But I, I, you know, I could be wrong. You know, I need to be humble about that. But um, yeah, there's there's a lot of good stuff in that book. There's a lot of good chapters, and I I think that uh, you know I still believe in a literal antichrist. You know, there's a lot of right. current end times theology out there that says, you know, I think the preterist view is gaining a lot of ground, especially in charismatic circles. You know, that just want to talk about blessing and and uh, and dominion and all that kind of thing. Um, 
but uh, you know the early church and, and the early church fathers they were they were very certain that there would be a a physical literal uh, singular antichrist in the end times and I think it's it, that's taught in both the Old and the New Testament and I think yeah. I got some I think I got some really good stuff in my um, in my research into the historical Nimrod and and the figure known as Asher in the Old Testament, just all those prophecies connect with what the New Testament says about about the Antichrist. So, yeah, I mean, we could still be having some major um, archaeological discovery in Egypt and find a five thousand year old corpse, and and that would be. Um, I, I need to republish a book before that happens, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, real quick, uh, we're kind of running out of time, but I just wanted to. to you could let people know where they can they can get the book um, and also like contact you and all that all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, the best place to get me is uh, well, I, you know, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, yeah, redmoonrising.com. dot com. Um, <laughs> talking speaking of red moons, um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, going my my first book, um, Red Moon Rising. It's it it's coming from what it was prophesied in the book of Joel and what. And what Peter refers to in the book of Acts about a blood red moon coming before the day of the Lord. Um, but yeah, I had to, I withdrew my red moon rising book, which was pure dispensationalism from beginning to end. I withdrew that book actually last year, right when the first blood red moons were beginning to happen. And I could have left it on the market, you know, uh, uh, and made a lot of money. But yeah, right uh, in because the dough, man. Red Moon Hysteria is out there, and this time it had it preceded by this absolutely magnificent solar eclipse, you know? Um, yeah. So there's all kinds of, uh, all kinds of Red Moon Hysteria going on. But, uh, yeah, the, for me, the Red Moon Rising, it means, it means a little something different to me these days. But to yeah. contact me, that's, that's the best way to reach me, redmoonrising.com. I have a blog. I got the website. I have a link now to um, my wife and I. We have a healing ministry. We're, we're much more involved in doing things locally with a local church. We're really connected with some really good people here locally that uh, hold us accountable, that uh, speak into our lives, that encourage us. Um, I was able to go to China uh, back in September for 16 days. Um, I'm just, uh, I really believe that uh, the body of Christ still has within them the um, the ability to turn the world upside down, and that's what uh, I want to give my life doing. You know, I uh, so we're probably going back to China again near the end of the year. Um, uh, I'm just, uh, I mean, I know I have some more writing to do, some more publishing, but uh, but in the meantime, I'm I'm working full time in construction. I'm paying the bills, and uh, I'm a little bit involved in ministry. If people wanna, if people are visiting Hawaii, come come check us out. Uh, just go to RedmondRising.com. Go to my healing ministry. It shows where where I'm speaking. My wife and I we're preaching at uh, at our church next Sunday. We got other uh, opportunities to preach um, here on Oahu, um, in Honolulu, also on the Big Island. Um, yeah, we're excited. There's a big uh, conference coming up in April. Um, and then Papa Boyd's visiting us at the end of April and looking forward to spending some time with him. The guy is, uh, he's a bona fide prophet. And uh, for a lot of people that doesn't, that, that raises an eyebrow and nobody knows what that means, but, uh, um, well, <laughs> that could lead into a whole different subject, but, uh, yeah. let's just say yeah. that I, we're, we're in a really good place as far as feeling that we're, 
we're we're doing what we're supposed to within the body of Christ, and we're trying to be faithful with the little that God's put in front of us, with the expectation that uh, that things are going to uh, grow and progress, and we're going to continue to to see a life lived with um, with miracles and answered prayers happening all around us. Well, Peter, thank you for coming on. Um, you guys got any questions or that was inspiring, Peter. Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you very much. I feel all good inside. All right. Yeah, I, I had to look up a couple of the words, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all the premillennialism and yeah, preterism exactly and millennialism and all that kind of stuff. I know. That's a, my Which, wife rolls her eyes when I talk like that too. So <laughs> we'll stay on she the keeps me down just, to earth. Right. Stay on the line for us just briefly, and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. What's up, all you nuts? Back on Spiranormal for your outro. Say goodbye. We're tired of talking to you guys. <laughs> that's 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 right. Except we got a few things to do here. Through plus special announcement. But first, I was doubting Luke uh, on his, you know, putting your sperm in the ground and uh, producing a baby. But he found the correct text. So I wanted him to read it here. Well, I, I just found an article like. I typed it in. I wanted to know. I don't. I still don't see anything about like specifically what I was talking about. It, it was like some kind of like esoteric part of the Kabbalah that was in like a book at my mom's house that I was reading yeah. one night. The extensive library of lore. Yeah, <laughs> dude, she's got some cool books. But anyway, uh, humunculi, golems, and artificial life. The notion of man-made humans or other living creatures fashioned by human hands has long been a history in mythology and folklore. In recent years, the development of genetic engineering, virtual reality, and artificial life of various sorts, it has gained new significance. But our current fascination with, not to mention dread over, the increasing likelihood of a genetically modified and artificial human is not, in essence, a particularly new development. It touches on some of the central themes of religion and the occult and magical practices that emerged from a once powerful but now submerged spiritual belief. The Kabbalah, for example, includes legends and stories about the alchemical homunculus or little man, and the golem, a kind of proto-Frankenstein's monster. In both cases, the idea is that through certain secret magical practices, human beings can share in the creative power of God. To the orthodox believers of both Judaism and Christianity, such a notion is considered blasphemous and betrays either the hubris of humanity or the work of the devil. How much the orthodox misunderstanding and rejection of these ideas help to distort them is unclear. And space and time prevent me from exploring this question. Although ostensibly... Ostensibly. Ostensibly concerned with very similar objectives, the creation of an artificial man, the alchemical homunculus, and the Kabbalistic golem are quite different. The popular understanding of these esoteric themes has for the most part been focused on a literal interpretation and their resurgence in our contemporary consciousness threatens to take that literalism seriously. Uh, blah blah blah. Okay, where's like, the part? Yeah, that let's get to the talk about like <laughs> from the actual Paracelsus or whoever it was that was the, the instructions on how to do it that you showed me while we were doing the interview. Yeah, I this thought... is real radio here, people. <laughs> yeah, just do, exciting podcast action. Do some filler for a second. While I, okay, here okay, here we go. You got it. Wally Wally World. If the if the sperma enclosed in a hermetically sealed glass is buried in horse manure for forty days and properly and properly magnetized, it begins to live and move. 
After such hmm. a time, it bears the form and resemblance of a human being, but it will be transparent and without a body. What? If it is now artificially fed with the Arcanum sanguinis hominis until it is about 40 weeks old, and if allowed to remain during that time in horse manure in a continually equal temperature, it will grow into a human child, with all its members developed like any other child, such as could be born by a woman, only it will be much smaller. Uh, we call such a being a humunculus, and it may be raised and educated like any other child until it grows older and obtains reason and intellect and is able to take care of itself. So there's no goat spraying or... No, that, that was... That, that was that's a, pretty easy. Like, <laughs> I, there's only one way to know. Like, yeah, yeah. No, just, just try it out, right? Out. Try yeah, it out. Get some horse manure. <laughs> well, I know a place where you can get some horse manure and... I've got stars everywhere. <laughs> well, that that stupid article that you're talking about, like the yeah. the original one, that was Lovecraftianism combined with <laughs> combined with what we're reading here. <laughs> like, did you some some fat nerd in his basement, like just oh, like yes. combine those two together? Is that his justification? Uh, is he trying to justify? justify masturbating while listening to goat spraying. Yeah, is like that maybe that's just his, that's that was his thing and he's like, "Well, I'm pretty sure this is how it's done, you know. Or this is my method." Well, uh, didn't you tell me that you were hanging out somewhere in uh, East Nashville, which is like the hipster part of town, otherwise uh, known as East Nazi, East Nasty. Gunshots also like yeah. a few streets away. Didn't you but... tell me that there's a whole bunch of guys that just like they're like love Lovecraft that you were hanging out with over there or something? Uh, hold on, let me dig through the archives. <laughs> well, while you're thinking about that, I have an email that I wanted to read. And this reads, um, Adam and Luke. I am sick of Luke shenanigans and juvenile antics. Is this a new one? Yeah, I'm totally kidding. Uh, so, so I have like just that? discovered your podcast and uh, I am stoked man. that I did. I have been listening to other people, and I have noticed that they have kind of become stagnant with their guests, as well as content. Your show has an amazing spectrum of guests, and I literally may get fired from my job for listening to like four shows a day. I can listen to one podcast to delve into hours of research and new presenters, and I thrive on that. I am a Christian, but not the cookie-cutter type. I went down a dark rabbit hole for a while, and because I have that experience, I firmly believe that I should know and learn... Not just learn to be, but be educated and respect all sides of beliefs. Let me add a disclaimer. I may think people are crazy and no one is at the helm of the ship, but even a broken clock is correct two times a day. With that respect and knowledge comes a huge ability to, ra- to rise above the your side is bad and my side is super fantastic when we can really learn a lot from all sides. From the subject line, you may be able to sense what my, la- my laugh my ass off favorite moment was from your podcast bar none. Classic kids, keep up the good work. Cali girl, over and out. Right on. Really awesome email. Oh, yeah. And the subject line was gummy cunnilingus. <laughs> which, that was from Thad McCracken. <laughs> <laughs> so, really cool. I want to thank her for writing yeah. in. That we was appreciate really awesome. you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And someone, I don't want you to get fired, but... I am glad that you listened to or to my to four hours of my show, my show a day. Yeah, it's that's really awesome. cool. Uh, have a good major announcement before we go. We are going to be on a yet another network uh, made 
the deal yesterday to be on. And this network is the Intrepid Paradigm Broadcasting Network. Uh, we've had some people that have been on the show, like Scotty Roberts. Uh, he has a show on there and a, and a few other people that uh, would look to get on the show eventually. And we're really going to be happy to be joining these guys. They have a, it's kind of like a, it's kind of a, like, it's kind of like the esoteric crowd in a way. So it's, uh, we're still going to be on French and we're going to be on here. And uh, Eric Altman, who actually is coming up next on our show, his show Beyond the Edge Radio is also on this show, on this uh, network as well. They're going to be streaming live uh, on our podcast. They're just going to pick the podcast up and they're going to stream live. But I don't know when that's going to be yet, or what days. So you're going to hear the the podcast. Uh, you're going to hear the podcast being streamed. Not necessarily live. That was kind of stupid. But you'll hear the podcast being streamed on there on Trip and Paradigm. <laughs> We're live. We are alive. You still, you can still, and you can still download from their side as well. And they've got it linked up straight to our Podomatic site. So, Wicked man, we're moving on up, moving on up, man, to the east side. So <laughs> I actually am too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm moving to the east uh, side. Is that you go? You gonna actually move to East Nasty? Yeah, I'm going to East Nasty per per uh, request of my girlfriend. Oh, how cute! <laughs> Just don't watch too many twerking videos while you're. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why would I watch videos when I can watch it in real life like, <laughs> down the street? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyway, it is pretty ghetto over there. <laughs> yeah, on that note, uh, join us uh, next. Actually, coming up this coming Saturday, and Rob is really bummed that he's not going to be here. Ah. We are going to have Eric Altman on. Uh, he, like I just mentioned, he has a show called Beyond the Edge Radio, and he is also a Bigfoot expert. And we're going to talk about whether Bigfoot exists. So I think it'll be a fun show. I love the cryptozoology uh, stuff. I am skeptical about Bigfoot. I am too, but I love the the. Right. Um, the psychology behind that sort of a... Right. I'm skeptical about it, and Luke doesn't believe at all. No. I just, <laughs> so, think, I just think they're apes. <laughs> but we will have we will have my friend Sean here, who absolutely believes in Bigfoot, and uh, loves to watch the, uh, what is that, Finding Bigfoot on, on the show, on the <laughs> Animal Planet. Oh, man, I fell in a mud hole. Did you see that glimpse? <laughs> oh, did you hear that? That was Bigfoot. That, that <laughs> rustling over there, that wasn't no normal rustling. <laughs> I think that bird we heard, in, uh, uh, we were talking to Peter Goodgame, that was probably Bigfoot. It sounded like he was in, like, inner earth. And yeah. It's like, <laughs> other, it's like weird species of birds. <laughs> Well, he is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) True. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so, and then after that, uh, we have Walter Bosley coming on to talk about uh, this book called Empire of the Wheel. It's actually a three-book series, and we're going to talk about some strange murders and happenings that have occurred all along the 33rd degree parallel. Maybe we'll ask him a little bit about Disneyland, too. (laughs) But, uh, Luke, why don't you go ahead and close us out? All right, guys, until next time, uh, join us on Conspiranormal! Good game. Great job. Gun in my hand.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.